Hey, what's up, guys? This could be in Carrington. Here are my guys at Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning, Tommy. What is this, like uh, coronavirus summer series day two for us? <laughs> Mike, they just start rolling in and we just got to keep doing them. We're just going to keep the count rolling. I'm excited about this one as always. Sterling Gibbs joins the program. But, you know, normally we kind of give a little prelude to, you know, the player, his history as we lead into the podcast and do the interview. This one's a little different. I mean, I am really excited because Sterling's got a lot of stories and, you know, and questions that we want to ask him. But where does he fall in the history of Seton Hall basketball? And I think, unfortunately, once again, he's going to get kind of painted in a picture that is just not fair to him. I think a lot of people are going to parallel his junior season with the incoming freshman class of Isaiah Whitehead a lot back to when we had the Ty Shine, Darius Lane, and Eddie Griffin class. Just the chemistry didn't work. And I think a lot of that is what he's going to be remembered for. But for a lot of other fans, they're going to remember him for the big shots and the big moments in the games that they won. So it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing his take on both sides of the coin, the good and the bad in this interview series. You know, I look at him a little differently. He came in during a downtime for the program and he became a bright light for it. You know, he's a Jersey kid. He played at the prep. He came to us at a specific time in the program where we weren't playing well and he brought some happiness to us. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to him. No, that's a real fair point. I mean, like I, but like I said, it's all about the perception of the audience and this is why we like to bring the ball players on and come kind of talk about the history of their career and the program. It can just kind of shine, it just kind of shines a different light from their perspective. And you kind of get to see how it all goes down behind the scenes once in a while. So without further ado, hailing from Scotch Plains, New Jersey, he's a graduate of Seton Hall Prep in West Orange and went on to play college basketball at Texas. UConn, and most importantly, Seton Hall University. He hit one of the most iconic game-winning shots in modern Seton Hall history. He has played professionally in Europe, most recently in the Adriatic League First Division. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Sterling Gibbs. Sterling, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Nah, thanks for joining the show, man. So, Sterling, we're happy that you're home and safe. You know, right when the outbreak started, it seemed like you were playing for Copa Primoska in the ABA League, 
and you are averaging almost 13 points a game. Now, the team granted you permission to leave, and I read there's good news on the horizon, as your wife's expecting. Congratulations. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited about it. Now, is this your first child? Yeah, this is my this, this is our, this our first child. Oh, man, you're in for it now, man. How are things with you and the family? Is everybody in good health? Yeah, yeah, everybody's in good health. Everybody's in good health. Everybody's um, back home. You know, my, my brother's in Pittsburgh. My my family, the rest of my family is really in New Jersey. So, of course, this is a tough time, but at the same time, to be back in New Jersey, be back around the family, it's definitely comfortable. Well, Tom's got three kids. I got two, and it's a blessing when you actually have a kid of your own. But, man... Life is never going to be the same. Just, <laughs> you better get you better get your sleep in now, man. Get it in now. I'm hearing. I'm hearing. All right, Sterling. So speaking of family, uh, you and your brothers rank one through three atop the all-time prep scoring list at Seton Hall Prep where you guys played your high school ball. But if I did my research correct, Temple actually edged you out by three points for first place on the all-time scoring list. And Ashley's yeah. kind of about like 100 points behind. Here's what I want to know. How much how much trash talking takes place at the dinner table around the holiday time about who's the better player? Oh, uh, you know, of course, they're, 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 there's always trash talking a little bit. But at the same time, you know, we as brothers, we always wanted each other to succeed. So, you know, I, I Ashton, you know, wanted me to beat his record. I wanted TJ to beat my record. But, you know, of course, TJ always has the, you know, the, the strongest punch on because he's the, you know, he, he's, he's at the top at this point, you know. Now, sure. Now, for those who don't have a good geographical grasp of the Union and Essex County area, Scotch Plains and West Orange aren't exactly the easiest places to commute back and forth through. Now, I know Seton Hall Prep's got the reputation but how was that decision made for you to attend the prep? I'm sure the local schools like Scotch Plains, my alma mater, Union Catholic, and even St. Joe's and Metuchen were disappointed not to get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, The thing is, um, I actually live literally right across the street from Union Catholic. So that, you know, that that's that <laughs> that's walking distance. Like literally pass what Union Catholic all the time. So, you know, of course that was, that was an option, but you know, my, my dad had went to Seton Hall Prep. Um, so one, especially once Ashton went there and I saw, you know, he had, he had success and, you know, we had a chance to play together. It was kind of like a no brainer for me at that point. I'm not sure if coach Regan was there when you were going to high school, but I sure that broke his heart. <laughs> All right, so we already talked about the success that you guys had uh, in high school. So obviously, you guys got a lot of a lot of pub and a lot of press, and probably a lot of uh, head coaches looking to recruit you to their program. We'll get into Maryland and Gary Williams in a second, but prior to <laughs> verbally committing to Maryland, who else was recruiting you the hottest? Uh, I honestly probably the school that. I was really thinking about going to besides before I committed to Maryland was uh, Florida. I, I was really thinking about going to Florida at that time. They were top tier program. And, you know, of course, you know, they were coming off of uh, some successful seasons because they had, they had won a couple times. I think they had won the back to back. The Joe Kim Noah class, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, of course it, it was fresh. It was kind of fresh in my head as far as what they, um, 
what they were producing. But you know, I being being young at that time, I I had in my head that Florida was too far for me. You know, I was like, oh, you know, that's too. I I, I don't. I really don't want to go all the way to Florida. That's just I won't be able to drive back and forth to get home. So you know, I just uh, I I don't want to commit there. So I gave it some time. Um, they picked up a couple other guys, and then at a certain point, you know, it just didn't make sense to even give that a you know. Yeah. But most of the Jersey boys are trying to get away, right? That's the big thing that we hear about is you can't keep anybody in New Jersey. You, you play in the inner city, or you play in like you know the local burbs, and people just want to get away and experience other parts of the country. You got a chance to see Florida. Every time that a year a recruit goes down to Florida and they see the sunshine and the campus and, and all the other luxuries that come with it, they, they have a difficult time kind of getting away from the, the Florida concept. But for, for you, that was too far away, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, at, at that point, because I'm, I'm a very, I'm a homebody. I like, I like being at home. I love being in New Jersey. I love, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I always want to be able to just see my family whenever I can. You know, and just get home at any point. So at that point, that's where Florida to me was like, ah, I, I really don't, you know. But eventually, I had chosen Texas, which kind of, you know, threw everything off. <laughs> which is even farther. But we will we will talk about geography. You know, maybe the maybe the Seton Hall prep geography class wasn't that good. In the interim, he chooses Maryland, so that makes sense, right? Maryland, you can hop in a car, you could drive. So, so let's go there. You were originally planning on attending Maryland. Gary Williams retires prior to your actual freshman season, and then you mm -hmm. decommit and ultimately go to Texas. How close were you to actually staying a Terp under new coach Mark Turgeon? Uh, I, I, I was kind of close. I was kind of close, but, you know, the thing for me was that Turgeon hadn't seen me play. So, like, he had been at Texas A&M before, and he, he didn't recruit me, you know, at Texas A&M. So, he didn't, he didn't really know my game the way that, you know, Coach Williams knew my game, um, Rob Isha knew my game. So, it was like, you know, I would be going in there kind of blind. And, um, you know, he, you know, if he doesn't, if he doesn't like the way that I play, then I might be in a situation where, you know, I, I have to transfer anyway. So, it was just like, you know, let me open up my recruitment see what what other options I have and see if any other coaches have seen me play and seen, um, you know, can put, you know, shift, put me into their offense and see what I can do, you know. I read somewhere that Mark was already kind of bringing in his own guys, not necessarily recruiting over you, but kind of going his own direction. Any truth to that? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, they, so as, as soon as he got the Maryland job, um, Seth Allen had committed, had committed there right away. And he was a grade younger than me. That's right. But at the same time, that was kind of like, you know, like that factored into, you know, my decision because he hadn't seen me play, but he had another guard that, you know, he was that was committed, committed, or you know, he was looking at for Texas AM already committed to Maryland. So that was kind of like, you know, I gotta get up out of there. All right. So geography lessons aside, you head to Texas, you play one year there, you're probably homesick based on everything we just talked about. Uh mm -hmm. But prior to coming to the Longhorns, you were ranked in the top 150 nationally. But Rick Barnes, from what I was reading, he had a pretty talented recruiting class. I mean, I, I was going back and, and going through the names. I remember Mike Cabongo. He was a local Jersey guy, right? Yeah, they, had, yeah. they had four top 100 kids in that class. And then the following year, they had another three top 100 kids in the 2012 class. Did it basically just come down to a situation where 
there weren't enough basketballs to go around with all the talented players that were going to be there that led you to transfer out? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that that factored into it. But at the same time, you know, I also wanted to come back closer to home. I think Seton Hall, you know, I, it was one of those things where I needed to go somewhere that really uh, needed me, not just wanted me, that like needed, you know, somebody to come in and, you know, make an impact and, you know, so on and so forth. But at the same time, I also, I, I was very big and I, you know, still am as far as uh, New Jersey basketball trying to, you know, and at that point, Rutgers wasn't doing too great. Uh, Seton Hall, Seton Hall, you know, they just had, we just had a good season with the Jordan Theodore at point guard. So it was like, you know, I can come in and kind of, you know, get my, get my confidence back, be able to uh, have fun playing basketball again and do it while being close to home and all my family coming to the games and so on and so forth. So that, that was very attractive to me. Well, we're glad you made the correct decision to come home. You knew it was 20 <laughs> minutes away from Scotch Plains. We're happy. Uh, in your first season with the school, you came in second in scoring with almost, with a little bit over 13 points a game. You led the team with four assists, and you got a chance to play alongside Fuquan Edwin, who won Big East Defensive Player of the Year. Now, how good was he on that side of the ball? Fu was good. He was really good on that side of the ball because his, he was he had always he always had active hands. So you know even in practice, you know you throw the ball anywhere near Fu, he's stealing it. Like he was always he was always active. He had long arms. Like and it, it was and it, it helped during the games. You know because now you could get out run. You know that you know we could put Fu on you know some of the top players. But at the same time, if say if I'm guarding one of the top players I knew off the ball, he was going to be a pest and he was going to get certain steals. So it, it, it was always nice knowing that, you know, you had somebody like that on your team. Now, how often would you guys match up opposite each other in practice? All the time, all the time. Because, you know, the thing is, Fu liked to talk, you know, he, he was, uh, <laughs> we had a lot of guys, we had a lot of guys on that team that, you know, uh, like to talk trash and, you know, we pushed each other uh, during practice. And I think that helped me especially going into the next season because, you know, I was able to match up against Fu all the time and practice, match up against, you know, hearing Brian Oliver talking a lot, um, match up against, you know, Tommy Mayan. And then that next season I was able to uh, take all that stuff, you know, going up against those guys and just, you know, have the confidence to kind of be the leader of the team at that point. You know, I, I could see Brian Oliver talking trash, but we had Fu on the program last summer, and Fu doesn't strike me as a trash talker, to be honest. So that, that's that's kind of oh, funny. Really? No, no, he, he was he was kind of humble and reserved. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. As as he's gotten older, I'm sure he, he doesn't talk as much, but he flips a he flips a switch once he once he gets on the court, though. All right, so oh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to throw Fu some more love here. When when he was on. Uh, he was telling us that while he was in the G League, Jerry Stackhouse basically said in a, you know, in a locker room that if there's a guy in, the, in, this, in this group that has the ability to play on the NBA, you're looking at this man right here, and he's, he's referencing Fu because he's got the ability to play D at that high level. Was his defense that good where it would have translated as like a 3 and D guy in the, in the, the big show? Oh, yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. You know, um, to be honest, I, I, would, I was surprised that – 
that he didn't make it as far as like, you know, of course the draft getting drafted, there's so much that can go, you know, in your favor or not in your favor. But as far as, you know, getting on a team, say for training camp and, and so on and so forth, I was surprised that, you know, that didn't happen. Um, but I think he also proved himself a little bit in the G league, uh, cause he, he was able, he was able to make, make a difference in that I, I think he was playing with the Raptors G League, Raptors 905. And I, I I will watch, you know, I'll watch games and I will see, you know, he played still with that hunger. You know, I think that once once guys get to the professional, professional level, some, you know, the hunger might drop down a little bit just because, you know, now you're getting paid to now you're getting paid to play. But he still played with that same hunger and that same passion. So you know, I, I was surprised that he didn't get the didn't get the look that I thought. You know, I think a lot of people thought that he deserved. You know, not to make this into a "this is your life" for Fuquan Edwin, but I think at some point he spent a little time in the Spurs organization. I think a summer league or something. And I thought to myself, man, if there's not a better spot for him with a Popovich team, Popovich <laughs> is going to be able to pull anything out of him. Oh, for sure. I thought that as well because I I, I knew he had played on the Spurs um, summer league team. And I, and I, as, as soon as I saw that, I was like, Oh, you know, that, that might be a good spot for him, you know, because that's, that's the perfect type of guy. You know, he has a lot of energy, plays defense, get up and down, you know, get out on the fast break and, you know, corner threes, so on and so forth. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Well, as, as Tom said, we invited you on the show. This is not a Fuquan Edwin expose. So let, let's get back to uh, that first season with the pirates. I remember that first season specifically relevant to what the NCAA was trying to do with the rules and make a point of emphasis to create more freedom of movement. And they completely cut back on like the hand checking that year. And to open that season, you guys played a game against Niagara. And everyone's gonna be like, why the heck are we talking about the Niagara game, right? But in that Niagara game, the two teams combined to shoot 102 free throws. And this is your first game as a pirate. You scored 23 points and went to the line 23 times yourself, making 17. Have you ever been part of a game with more free throws than that? No, not at all. And, and, and you know, once that was the first game I had played in a year because I had the sit-out year. Um, and I was like, you know, as, as the game's going on, you keep going through, going to the foul line, going to the foul line, going to the foul line. I'm like, oh, wow, if this is how college basketball is going to be. You know, I'm a... <laughs> I, I, I'm in good shape, you know what I mean? Because it is any any time, like I, because they had just implemented the rule, anytime someone would even breathe on you, foul, 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 foul. So I think a lot of guys and even the referees were getting used to it in the beginning of the season, but it was just a lot of fouls being called, a lot of fouls throughout throughout all of college basketball. You had like 20 free throws against Oklahoma a couple games after that, did you not? I was just about to say, I remember the Oklahoma Oklahoma game because it's, it's funny because um my first, right when I came out of um, out of college and I played in summer league, I, I saw Buddy Heald in, uh, in Vegas. And, you know, we were actually talking about when we played, because I, I, I hadn't played against him, you know, I, after that or even before that, that was the first time and only time. And, you know, the, the first thing that he mentioned was, 
20 free throws or 20 some free throws or whatever um or when we played them and how and how we should have won that game oh but michigan state was on the horizon don't get me started they were number um, one in the country right yeah they were number one in the country and i wanted that game so bad you know you mentioned your sit out year and i don't think we've ever asked anybody this question how difficult was it for you to sit out that year i mean you're a high level player coming out and now you just got to do nothing basically but practice. That had to be a killer. Yeah, uh, honestly, it, it, was, it was tough. But it's, it's really the way that you look at it. Because, you know, when I, I was thankful that I had Shaheen there. Because, you know, once, once I realized that, you know, once I knew I was sitting out and the fact that I was close to home. So Shaheen was kind of like, you know, he sat me in, in his office and he, he was like, you know, um, you could take this either way. You could take it as a bad thing or you could take it as a good thing that you'll be able to get, have an extra year, be able to work out throughout that whole year, you know, get your body right, you know, get get refocused and then go into that next year and, you know, really make a statement. So, you know, throughout that sit-out year, I was, I was um, on the scout team all the time. So, you know, if, it, if the other team had a really good guard that could shoot whatever, I was just coming down shooting every single time in practice, <laughs> you know, and then at the same time playing one-on-one and, you know, working out. And then, you know, my dad, my dad was right there as well. So he would come in, we would work out together. So I was able to really get my confidence back after not playing as much as I wanted to at Texas get my confidence back and really get back in the rhythm of, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, make a big statement once I was able to get back on the court. Well, good. Lucky for you, the refs finally kind of loosened up with the tough calls. I know you probably would have liked to spend the entire season at the line, but you got a chance to do some other things on the court. You had some other big games and big moments. You logged 43 minutes and a double OT win at Providence to kick off the Big East season. Earlier in the non-conference, you actually had 27 at the rack in a winning effort of the first ever Garden State Hardwood Classic. How much mm-hmm. fun was it to beat Rutgers two times when you got a chance to play them? Oh, it was fun. It was, it was always fun. Um, you know, it, like, especially that game uh, that at the rack, the first, my first year playing, I think, I want to say Fukuan was hurt. Um, so I remember going into that game and I think Rutgers, they had a little bit of confidence to them because, you know, Fuquan was Fuquan wasn't playing. So we were we were a little we were a little down, but we came in and I, I was able to have a good game. I remember Eugene T had a really good game at that point, too. So it was really nice beating them and having that um, rivalry feel to it. You know, it was just like you, you could tell that they really wanted to beat us and we really wanted to beat them as well. I remember Harold Carlos even stepping up in that game, getting a lot of like, you know, dirty minutes where he's kind of scrapping for rebounds, maybe grabbing a late offensive rebound off of a free throw miss to kind of reset the clock for us late in the game. It, it was a, it, you know, Rutgers was four and five. I don't know what they were so hyped up about at that point. But yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever you guys take the court against each other, records aside, you know, it's a, it's a grudge match. And you could tell that the fans were into it like they always are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was nice playing at the rack. I hadn't played there since high school, so that was always that was always nice. 
No moment could have been bigger than the one that took place at Madison Square Garden in the quarterfinals of the Big East tournament that season. You're playing number three, Nova. You guys take a league at half, eight points, but they rally back to take a lead with 11 seconds left to play on a Darren Hiller jumper. We had John Fanta on a few weeks ago, and he was like, he was recording it from the sidelines, and he said that all the crowd was like, oh, we never win these kind of games. But Fu raced the ball into the front court, and Coach Willard called a timeout with four seconds to play. From that point on, I want you to tell me how it went down. Uh, so we, so he calls timeout. Um, the play was to get it into Eugene, Eugene Teague actually, and he was going to make a quick move and try to get, try to get it on at the rim. And I remember we coming out of the huddle, and at that point, you know, I, I, I was feeling good at a couple moves, at a couple shots that that had gone in, but at the same time, I also felt like. You know, um, in the one-on-one situation, I want I I wanted I wanted the ball. You know, as far as far as like you know, with the game on the line. So then, you know, I told Jaron I was like, because he, he was inbounding the ball. I was like, hey, you know, let 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 me let me finish this out. Let me um, because I I, I I feel like I, I'll give us a, a good shot. So, but it, it ended up being, you know, the play ended up kind of breaking down a little bit, got the ball at the top and ripped through and went to, went to my step back, which was, you know, I was able to, able to get a good shot off. You know, we're watching it here in San Diego. You put that shot up and I'm just screaming, you know, everybody's running around the court. What were the emotions like right on the court right after that? Oh, uh, it was, it was really crazy to be completely honest. I don't remember, I don't remember much because as soon as I stepped back and I shot it, I felt I, I knew it was going in because I, I, I had that feel. I remember this was, I want to say my brother's senior year of high school. Eric Devendorf at the Garden when they went in, when uh, Syracuse UConn went into five overtimes or so, or four five. overtimes. No, it was five, yeah, five overtimes. Yeah, yep. five. Yeah, five. I remember Eric Devendorf, like right before one overtime, he hit a three. And then it went in, and then he jumped up on the uh, scores table, and then you know they they it waved it off. It didn't count though. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I remember you know telling myself like if I ever if I ever made a game winner at Madison Square Garden, I was jumping on the scores table. <laughs> I, I, I always I I always had that memory in the back of my mind. So like as soon as I shot and I felt like it was going in. I was running towards the scores table. And then as soon as I saw it go in, I jumped on top of the scores table. And, you know, I, I was celebrating. So I didn't even know exactly what was going on until I saw the video after. This is what kills me. You know, the minute that happens, of course, we're jumping on ESPN.com to see if we get some love. And what do they have a picture of on the front page? Jared Cena running around with his mouth <laughs> wide open. He didn't do anything on that play. He wasn't even a part of it. Where's the love, Sterling? Jared was a kid in a candy store, man. He's, he's pumping the arms. He's, got, like, the he's running he's around going. like he's Jim Valvano for crying out loud. Jared, get off the screen. I want to see Sterling. Yeah, no, I was like, oh, you know, I would have thought that they would have put, you know, put the camera on me or put the camera on my face or something. But, you know, it, it was 
it was all love because you know they I I know they were excited as well. So they probably couldn't they probably couldn't tell um, the difference between who who made the shot and who did it for, from the excitement. <laughs> Everybody running around the court. There's no Big East love from from ESPN. We understand that. You know, you know what's the funny takeaway from this story is, you know, here's here's Coach calling a play in the huddle. I think Gene, like I said, Gene was having a good game, but here's here's the alpha, right? And this is what you want. You want the alpha on your team to go. Uh-uh. I don't care what the coach just called. I- I'm getting the ball here, right? So why are, yeah. we, why are we paying all these coaches all this money if, if Sterling's just going to overrule them and be like, I'm taking the shot anyway? <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure, for sure. And I think that's what me and Coach Willard butt ahead sometimes. Because you know, I, I I I was so confident in myself, honestly. Those type of situations, you know, I, I was always gonna kinda, you know, take it in my own hand. And, you know, I remember after after the game, we had we went to the hotel, but we had to go back to um, Madison Square Garden for an interview, me and coach. So we're in the back of uh taxi cab together you know going back to Madison Square Garden and he was like you know that 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 took a lot of balls that took a lot of big balls because you, know, <laughs> you know you know if you missed that shot I would have killed you like, <laughs> you know don't listen to Mike half the time he's complained that Willard's not calling a play now he's complaining that Willard should just give it to the alpha and everybody get that way out don't listen to Mike right now I, I play the narrative to this Willard can't <laughs> win with Mike don't listen to him not, <laughs> a, not a chance not a chance no. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's move on. So the so the following year is your junior season. You know the the team was pretty competitive in that semifinal game against Providence. So everyone felt like everything was going in the right direction. And then you also have these elevated expectations because you have the heralded recruiting class led by Isaiah and Angel joining the mix. And the team didn't disappoint. Early out mm-hmm. of the gate, you guys race out to a seven and zero start, which included winning the Paradise Jam tournament. In the championship game, you scored forty. You were 10 of 14 from the floor, 7 of 9 from 3, 13 from 13 from the line again, and you won the tournament MVP. Only 14 players in Seton Hall history have scored 40-plus in a single game wearing pirate blue. You are now one of them. Was that particular game just an example of kind of being in the zone at that moment for you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it was. I was in a zone. But at the same time, you know, like, like I said, you know, I've, I've always been confident in myself, you know, so like once you kind of see a couple shots going, you, you know, in the game, it's a close game and you, you kind of like feel like, okay, you know what, I got to take this game over. I think that really propels you um, because at the same time, you know, we were still trying to figure, our team was trying to figure each other out, you know, Isaiah was coming in. He was trying to get a feel for, you know, college basketball in general, you know, same thing with Kadeen and even Angel, but we didn't really know who was going to step up and who was going to play what role. We were still trying to figure it all out. And then, you know, at that point, that was where, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I, I, I know I can score. I know, you know, this is, this is the role that I'm putting myself in, not just, you know, just, sitting back and waiting and that's and that's where I think the the 40 came in you know I I I was able to take over the game and able to make some shots so I don't care who's trying to figure out what role when a guy's got it rolling you got to defer to the guy with the hot hand I remember Jamel Jackson had that crazy game against VMI where he set the record for three pointers in a game at that point I don't care who the alpha on the team is you got you got to let the man shoot when the man's hot right 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and that's that's definitely what it comes down to. So, you know, as you know, especially if you have good guys on the team that they'll they'll definitely, you know, defer. And I think that's what makes the team good. Well, I, I don't think they were deferring to you in the next couple couple games that came up. You played two big matchups. Isaiah gets hurt. Uh, so he's out for these two, two games. You got number 15, St. John's, and number six, Villanova, on the schedule. You lead the team with 25 and 20 points, respectively. And then a the couple games later, you followed it up by hitting a big three-pointer to basically get the heck out of Dodge against Creighton for a one-point victory to move on to three and one in conference play. You know, at that point, the team's 13 and three. You're ranked 21 in the polls. And basically, what I want to know is, what did the team think the ceiling was at that moment in time? Uh, we we thought we thought we were headed in the right direction. You know, you look back at it, it's it's tough. Honestly, it's really tough looking back at it because we a lot of things were going right at that point. We thought that you know we were going to be NCAA tournament team. You know, we thought that it was it was it was all you know. We we had just I think we have been ranked 18 and then we went 21 after the Xavier loss. So a lot of things were looking up, but at the same time, I think we also got too comfortable a little bit. You know, we, we celebrated the St. John's and the Villanova uh, win. And that was just the, the first two games of the conference, you know, and that, and that's where I think that that hurt us a little bit because we, we took, we thought we actually did something at that point. Well, the season kind of rolled out of control. It didn't play out the way you thought you were going to play it out. And we just had Kadeen Carrington on the show, and he described the state of the locker room as a tough situation after the Georgetown loss at home. How would you characterize it? I agree. A hundred percent. It was it was a tough situation. Um, you know, I think when – at that point, we didn't. We had what two seniors? Uh, was it Brandon and Harold? But those they they weren't very outspoken guys, so they weren't like you know. So we didn't really have a um, very at that end, and this includes me, a very mature team. So we didn't. We didn't. Our team hadn't been through a lot. So you know, a lot of the outside influences were kind of coming in. You know, with the media and with you know certain guys, you know, hearing certain things outside. And if you don't, if you don't have a team that's, that's been through it and that's mature and, you know, it's going to affect the team. And I think that's what, that's kind of like what hurt us a little bit. You know, we, we had a lot of things going on from the outside, but cause you know, I think the team in itself, all the guys kind of, you know, we all liked each other. We all hung out off the court we all were good on you know on the court but certain things that you know that maybe uh an older team a more mature team would be able to get through at that point it was tough for us to get through now we had marcus tony l on last summer mm -hmm. and you know his team was the granddaddy of all locker room strife teams but he made yeah, an yeah. interesting comment saying, you know, looking back at it now, uh, as he's a more mature person, he said, you know, things could have worked out differently. Things could have worked out better. And he had good relationships with people that he didn't necessarily have at that point. Do you think that's a fair characterization for you? 
Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, I, I think, you know, I could have definitely done a lot of things differently. Um, I think, you know, a lot of other situations could have been handled differently. But, you know, and I, I think it's a maturity thing. I think, you know, if we were all put in this, that same situation now with, you know, us being older and more mature, things would probably be a lot different, you know, but I, I think it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have led to us all being where we are if, you know, if, if it didn't happen though. Maybe it's just you Seton Hall prep kids, you know, quick tempers. You, Marcus, Tony L, man, I don't know, man. <laughs> what are they doing at the prep? You should have came to the Vikings. That's <laughs> uh, funny. Marcus is my guy, though. Uh, I, I, I still keep in touch with Marcus. Marcus is good people. All right, so here's my question relevant to this situation. I mean, obviously, we're in a pro sports town. The media likes to hype things up. Was it unfair for them to characterize the locker room as you know as divided there was a lot of parallels as tom mentioned to the ty shine eddie griffin saga and you know we don't get the true story i mean it, it was it just blown out of proportion i i think i think to a certain extent it was blown out of proportion because you know um certain certain things like yeah every 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 team is going to have its differences. You know, everybody's it's not always just going to be, you know, smooth sailing, but at the same time, we were able to talk out certain things and we were able to, you know, work through certain things. But, you know, once the, once the media got a hold of some things that, you know, might not have even been true, you know, I think that, you know, that, that, like I said, it separates, uh, it separates, uh, um, kind of immature locker room because I think, you know, we, we weren't, we didn't have that maturity that, you know, um, that you would want and need to get through certain situations like that. So I think that that's where it really comes down to. All right, Sterling. So I want to pivot now to a situation that also kind of talks to maturity and just kind of another, you know, tough moment in your career. I, obviously there's always highs and lows, but you had an unfortunate moment in a 26 point blowout loss against Villanova that year. Tom wants to give you all the props in the world for dropping the people's elbow on Ryan Archie <laughs> I've got no problem with that moment, Sterling. This is all on Mike. I think it was beautiful. <laughs> however, however, you know, you, you serve the suspension and the season just kind of, as Tom mentioned, goes off the rails. The team loses nine out of his last 10. Did you know in your mind that it was time to move on from the Seton Hall or did the decision take much more deliberation after the season was over? Um, it, it took more thought, honestly, because I, I, I love Seton Hall so much and I loved, you know, playing in New Jersey for New Jersey, uh, having my, being around my family, having my family there. And it, it was, it was such a tough decision for me that, you know, I really didn't want to, I really didn't want to make that decision, but I, I felt like for me, I kind of, I kind of had to, you know, it was, it was time for, you know, for something new. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it worked out perfectly for both sides, you know, with um, the team that came back, you know, because those guys were really good. You know, they were, uh, of course, they were young, but they had a lot of talent. And for me, it was, you know, I, I was going into my senior season and I really, I really wanted to kind of go to a situation where it was going to be win now 
you know, because that was the last, that was the last year I had. And I, I really wanted to experience that tournament feel again and, and actually make an impact while experiencing it. 300 division one schools, Sterling, and you had to go to UConn. <laughs> what was Syracuse not available? Did you really just have to stick the knife into everybody here? <laughs> in all seriousness, it was good for you. you. You got another chance to play another year. How challenging was it to adapt to a third team in a fourth year period? Oh, it, it was challenging. It was really challenging. Um, you know, like, I, I, I kind of look at it. I, I did look at it on paper and you say, okay, you know, you, we have this piece, we have this piece. And, you know, with this lineup, honestly, we can, we can do some big things, you know, by the same time, uh, you know, just coming into that system and coming into a brand new team and having to make it work at that, you know, specific year with, with, um, with guys that are already used to the system, they're already used to everything that goes into, you know, they're used to the coaching style and everything. And I'm trying to adapt to it. Uh, it was tough. It was tough. You know, I, I think um, I didn't know that it would be as tough as it was, but to be honest, it really prepared me for um, moving forward in my professional career. Cause that's pretty much what you have to do now. Well, here's the irony. You, you go to UConn for the chance to make the NCAA tournament, and the team does actually make it. You guys end up having a decent run. You lose to Kansas, who was the number one overall team in the country at that point in the second mm -hmm. round. But the reality is you needed to run the AAC tournament to earn that bid. Otherwise, you guys are probably not going to make it, right? And you, exactly. you, get match, you get matched up against Cincinnati. And the other irony is we're talking about the Eric Diebendorf shot where he's on the – you know, standing up on the podium or standing up on the scorer's table in this five overtime game, yet you get to participate in a four overtime game and you log 54 minutes in that game against Cincinnati. How, how, how does that feel to play that many minutes in a game? Oh, I was dead. I was <laughs> dead. I was dead. Because I, I remember my mom and my now wife, uh, they were out there with they were out there with me. And I remember after that game, I was like, oh, my goodness. I don't even know how I'm going to be able to play another game. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you're not – especially the conference tournament, you know, you have to play back-to-back -back games, and you're not you're not expecting that. But I think our adrenaline was running so high because we knew we had to win that after that game, uh, we we were like, you know, if, if we could win that game, then we should easily be able to win the whole tournament because we beat – uh, Cincinnati, I think at the time they were number one seed or whatever. And we were like, man, you know, we have to win this. Like we, we, we put too much energy into winning that game that, you know, we got to finish this job out. It was just kind of a bit of destiny. No, I mean, Jalen Adams hits this three quarter court heave at the buzzer to force the fourth overtime. I mean, you got to be going back to the, the huddle at that point going, there's no way we're losing this game after that just went down. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because the thing is, before, as he was shooting the shot, literally, like, just thinking, like, oh, man, you know, we're going to NIT. You know, this is, this whole, this whole kind of, you know, uh, situation, this whole, you know, decision to come here and so on and so forth. Now I'm, you know, kind of questioning it, at, you know, at that point. And then as soon as I saw that, as soon as I saw the ball go in, like, even when I watch the video now, like, I was, 
at the opposite foul line and he he made the shot and he ran you know all the way to the corner I come sprinting down and I literally tackled him and I'm like oh man you know it, it was and I I probably thanked him so many times for that and I'm you know it was it was as soon as he made it it was kind of like okay you know this is kind of this is pretty much God's plan for us to win this we got to do it Shame on Cincinnati for over-celebrating the point six seconds ago. Nobody even decided to defend the inbounds pass or even be anywhere near the ball at that point. So that, that should just be a teaching moment for every coach at that point going forward, right? We've we got all these players that come on and talk to us, and when there's moments where the team just kind of falls short of the NCAA tournament, and they're like, looking back, you know, I, I should be appreciative of the opportunity to play on the NIT. But here's 20 years later comparing you to Marcus, and you're still sitting there in your head going, damn. Here comes the NIT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, honestly, <laughs> like, as Seton Hall, honestly, at the, I, like, you know, during that time, I was like, okay, you know, um, that last year at Seton Hall, it was like, okay, you know, I really want to play in the tournament. But, you know, if we get to the NIT, I would also be happy because I, you kind of saw the season crumbling. But, when I went to UConn, it was like, look, we have to make this happen. We have too much talent on this team. And, you know, like I made this decision to come here that, you know, I, I have to figure out how to, you know, pretty much optimize this, you know, and 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 get it done. And NIT wasn't gonna cut it. That that wasn't that wasn't what I came here for, you know. So if if, if that was if that if that happened it was going to be a very, very tough pill to swallow. And it was going to be very tough to even get motivated for those games. So I, I was happy that, you know, we made it to the NCAA tournament. We, we've said it over and over. If the, if Seton Hall gets invited to the NIT, they should decline. Because I don't remember the last time we had even a second of a positive experience playing in those games. <laughs> so you get out of stores, thank God. And you go on to a uh, professional career. You played some summer league ball for the Wizards. You got drafted in the then D-League. You played in a multitude of countries. You played in Hungary and Dominican Republic, where you actually got a chance to play with your brother Ashton. Now, in mm -hmm. your wildest dreams, did you ever think you'd get this kind of shot? No. No, honestly, not. I, I didn't. You know, I, I was – I didn't know too much about – overseas basketball or you know even latin american basketball or anything but um i personally didn't think that that would happen but it was it was really nice because we were able to you know we were able to push each other we were able to pretty much you know live with each other you know stay you know and and help each other out you know because that that season is during the summer and so i went straight from europe right to dominican republic and it's just tough not being around, you know, your family and not be at home during the time that everyone's out and having fun and everyone's back home and, you know, you're seeing everybody. But to have, you know, have my brother there with me and, and then, you know, be able to play basketball, be able to travel and everything, it made it a lot easier. You also had stops at Ru in Russia, France, Slovakia, Greece, and most recently in Slovenia, which was postponed because of the whole coronavirus. We always <laughs> like asking our guests, what's been your favorite destination so far? Oof. Um, 
I feel like each destination has its has its own uh, things. But if I had to pick a favorite, I'll probably say um, it would probably be a yeah. I would probably say France. I'd say probably say France because France was it was more Americanized. I, I, I don't know. It, it, something about the culture was just very, I, I liked it. I, it was very fitting for me. Um, You'd be pissing off a lot of Parisians right now saying that their country's Americanized. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> well, why do I just envision like Sterling sitting there with a glass of wine after a game, staring up at the Eiffel Tower and thinking about his wife or something? <laughs> Wearing a beret, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, but it was it was a good it, you know, honestly it was a good experience because you were I, I was about an hour and a half away from Paris, an hour and a, you know, and I could hop on the train, uh, go straight to Paris. Uh, the food was you know you had every type of food that every type you know that you would want anything that you could get in the states you could get there really. So it was it was it wasn't like I was you know missing too much. Now, recently you announced that you're a part owner of Big East Elite Basketball, which people can follow at FP Sports Complex on Twitter. Tell us a little bit about this new endeavor and who the organization works with. So I, I, I just partnered with them uh, through the Florham Park Sports Complex. You know, they're, they're building something huge there. They have a full turf. Uh, they have the strength and conditioning uh, part as well, uh, where they have, um, they call it the annex. And then they had, they just built a whole full basketball court that I'll be, uh, pretty much taking over, which is, uh, the big East elite. And, you know, I, I think it's a, a program where that can be very huge. I think this whole coronavirus has kind of put a stop to it, put a pause to it a little bit, which, you know, it's put a pause to it kind of every day. But at the same time, you know, um, through the camps, through the clinics, and, you know, we'll be doing some uh, pickups and certain things. Uh, eventually, you know, we want to get in, be able to do pre-draft stuff in there, uh, help guys out. But I think it'll be, it's going to be a big, um, it's going to be a big thing. And, you know, I can't wait to get it started. So, Sterling, before we let our guests go, we make them walk the plank. We ask them five rapid-fire questions. We're looking for five rapid-fire answers. Don't think too long. Just knock it out the park with the first thing that comes out your head. You ready for this? Yeah, let's do it. All right, question number one. Most points scored in any game at any level? 50. Which team was your biggest arch rival? Arch rival. Villanova. Toughest road environment. Toughest road environment? Probably Wichita State. No, I actually take it back. Kansas. Toughest opposing player you ever played? Kyrie Irving. Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play? Best Seton Hall player? Probably Jeremy Hazel. Bonus question. If I hooked you up to a lie detector test and asked you who balls the best in the Gibbs family, the answer would be? Sterling Gibbs. There we go. Congratulations, <laughs> Sterling. You have walked the plank. Uh, so I, I want to go back real quick. Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Is it is it that iconic? Is it that crazy? Oh my goodness! I, I, like that's why I had to. That's why I had to change my answer. Fog Allen is something that is like it gives it. It gives you chills. It's like you know you come in 
And as you're walking in, so usually teams get, get to the gym about three hours early, you know, or so, you know, get to the, get to the game about two, three hours early. Um, I remember at Texas, we had, we, we got there early and we had even gotten there earlier than we usually do. And it was just, it was crowded in one specific spot. And I was like, good gosh, all these people are there already. And then, you know, you come, you have a walkway where you go to the arena, you go in, you know, enter the arena and it's crowded with people booing you and so on and so forth, whatever. By the time you get on the court to warm up, the whole place is packed. And they have, you know, their their chant, Rock, Chalk, Jay, Hawk. And all of a sudden, you know, the crowd is just blasting. It, it was to the point that, you know, uh, we had to change uh, certain plays to numbers. So because you, you could barely hear yourself in there. So it was it was. It was honestly the best environment I've ever played in. It must be something about that Midwest basketball, because I remember that game on television when you guys did go out to Wichita State. And once they got rolling, man, that crowd was loud. You you felt it coming through the television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That which that that's the thing. That that Wichita State game was was also crazy because they were they were good. And at the same time, that that crowd was ridiculous. And the way that their gym was set up. Uh, the arena was set up, the fans were kind of like on top of you. And like, you you know, you just heard them throughout the whole game. You know, we started going on a run at, uh, at a certain point. Isaiah actually went on a run himself. And I remember they just kept getting louder. I'm like, uh, you would think that they would start, they would start to, you know, quiet down a little bit, but they were just getting louder. And then next thing you know, they pulled away. Yeah, yeah remember Isaiah going right. nuts in the first half, kind of keeping it close, but then they kind of yeah. they took it to you. That that team had Fred Van Vliet and Ron Baker. I mean, that was, that was a good Wichita mm-hmm. State team. Yeah, they were really good. They were really good. They were really good. They, they had a lot of talent. You know, I'd make a joke about nothing else going down in Wichita, but, you know, I think I'll be nice today. <laughs> so, Sterling, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. We really appreciate you and your time, man. You can come on anytime you were gold, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, I'll definitely I'll definitely keep that in mind. We're going to have the Sterling Gibbs corner from now on in. Sterling Gibbs, everybody. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.